Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast on American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing this week? Well, Charles, to tell you the truth, I'm a little exhausted because I was traveling a great deal the past few days. Where, including, where, where'd you go? Including to my younger brother's graduation from everyone's favorite university, Yale. Everyone, I, I, after years of waging journalistic war against that institution, I was finally back on its campus to I celebrate my brother's week, graduation. I think, I think last week at the intro, you just come back from the, from the Teal event. There's a little time hop going on there. We won't tell our listeners. Um, they're going to hear anyway. So you say, yeah, you great. How was, how was, how was the graduation? It was good. You know, as, as you'll, I'm sure, remember, having graduated there yourself, there, there's, a, there's a nice sort of procession with a marching band and lots of music. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, Yale is a terrible institution that is, is a cancer on society, but they do have a lot of talented musicians, albeit presumably musicians with horrible views that Yeah, I mean, they're going to graduate and uh, go on to, to destroy various cultural institutions of great musical significance. Um, indeed. Indeed. And that is what we are going to be talking about today. Oh, the, how, 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 how woke musicians are starting to reshape the institution of the orchestra. Charles, why don't you tell listeners a bit about our guest today? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's a lot to cover with our guest today. We're joined by Heather McDonald. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's my colleague there. Uh, and she's also contributing editor of City Journal. And a New York Times bestselling author, most recently of the diversity delusion about uh, the spread of these ideologies to higher ed. She's done a great deal of reporting for City Journal, where we both write about the dramatic changes that have taken place in the world of classical over the past uh, year and a half. Heather, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you so much, Charles and Aaron. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. So, so let's just sort of start at the very beginning. You've written a lot about the dramatic changes in art and classical music in particular. Most, but most Americans, you know, unfortunately, most Americans don't listen to classical music. They don't attend opera on a regular basis. What are the, what are the stakes of this story? Why should listeners probably themselves don't consume a lot of this art be concerned about these changes? Well, it's happening in every major institution of civilization in the West today, the absolutely ignorant attack from the race activists claiming that Western high art and Western science, Western technology is all irredeemably white supremacist because of the demographic history of Europe, which made most traditions inevitably be white because there were very few non-Caucasians in Europe, why somebody who doesn't listen to classical music should be concerned about classical music, I would say, first of all, start listening to classical music so that you can appreciate what you are about to lose if this crusade continues. I acknowledge that classical music has been incredibly marginalized in our culture now. Students are not exposed to it. If your parents are not exposing you to it, you basically have little chance of, of getting exposed. But nevertheless, you can see the tragic 
and outrageous trajectory that classical music is on, which is down towards mediocrity as a stand-in for any other tradition that you may care about that does not manifest a proportional representation both in its performers and in its the bureaucracies that Aaron talks about based on the trivialities of skin color. So so you've obviously covered a lo- a number of kind of discrete scandals in the world of high arts that are driven by this vogue progressive ideology. Could you maybe just talk briefly about some of the stories you've uncovered and sort of note any themes that connect all of them? Well, I would say basically the theme across different arts, whether it's in the museums or in the STEM fields even, or in classical music or in the theater world, is that of white culling. Any institution which is deemed too white is under enormous pressure to change its demographics by lowering standards. The English touring opera, which is an ensemble in, in Great Britain that tours through, through the Commonwealth and, and brings opera to lesser served communities, half of its musicians, orchestral musicians, were notified this year that they would not be having their contracts renewed simply because they were too white. The docent program at the Art Institute of Chicago, the great Beaux-Arts structure in, on the Magnificent Mile that houses one of the great art collections on this continent, terminated its docent program entirely because the docents were overwhelmingly white and also middle class. And the pressures now in the classical music world are, as you alluded to before, Charles, to set aside what have been scrupulously fair procedures for filling orchestral ranks, which are blind auditions, which means that the audition committee cannot see the identity of of the musicians who are auditioning for a seat on the orchestra because orchestras have remained stubbornly below the national proportion of of Blacks in this country, which is 13% nationally, and orchestra ranks are are about less than 2% Black. What is, by definition, a colorblind and therefore non-racist process through the magic of the kind of Orwellian redefinition of racism today, thanks to long-standing academic currents and then reaching flowering with the post-George Floyd riot era, those non-racist procedures are deemed racist. So to be colorblind today is to be racist. Martin Luther King would be deemed a white supremacist if he gave some of his most famous speeches today. You have people, you know, there was an opera director at the Manhattan School of Music, which is one of the major music conservatories in New York City, who was fired despite enormous support from her, from past Black students of hers, simply because she had mounted an operetta that was deemed to contain anti-Asian stereotypes. Nothing in an operetta is serious. You know, Gilbert and Sullivan 
mostly lampoon white Brits to take any of their characters as literal representations or serious representations of a, of a group is, is absurd. Nevertheless, Donna Vaughn was fired because she had also cut off somebody who had intruded into a Zoom meeting that accused her of racism. Had she been Black, she would have been inoculated against such treatment. Uh, what I find really the most amazing thing, though, about the anti-whiteness crusade directed at the arts, whether it's at, at classical music or the visual arts, is the adolescent reductiveness of thinking that the salient characteristic shared by composers as wildly distinct, say, as, you know, the Renaissance Josquin Dupre or Baroque Scarlatti and Bach and Handel and, and Beethoven and revolutionary zealots like, like Berlioz and exquisite composers of, of German lead like Schubert and the French, you know, late 19th century composers, Debussy, Ravel, of course, you've got Wagner, you've got Liszt. To think that composers, each of whom have so exclusively idiosyncratic and unique a voice, each of whom has allowed listeners to enter into previously unexplored realms of human emotion and consciousness into, into realms of, say, the late Beethoven quartets or piano sonatas that take you really beyond human experience into a, a space that is so troubling, so uncharted, uh, that nothing compares to it, to reduce all of those to the common denominators of whiteness and maleness exhibits a shallowness of understanding that should immediately disqualify anyone who proposes whiteness and maleness as the salient characteristics of the Western tradition. And I include in that our leading classical music critics, such as the New Yorker's Alex Ross or New York Times' Anthony Tomasini. The same reductiveness is being directed against the artistic canon, where you have the, the head, say, of the Chicago Art Institute apologizing for the entablature around the Art Institute that lists 36 names, 35 of them, are from the West. There's a Japanese 19th century court, court painter. According to Rondeau, that entablature is not acceptable today. It would have been, you know, it would have been sandblasted it off the face of the of the Art Institute years ago had had historical preservation laws allowed. To think that the, the thing that connects, say, you know, Giotto and and Turner or Rubens and Murillo is whiteness and maleness is just as idiotic. And yet you have major cultural institutions kowtowing to these ignoramuses and not a single leader in the field, not a single person with power who is the guardians of this tradition has had the guts to fight back 
and defend the tradition that each one of these conductors and soloists has worked his life to perpetuate and 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 share with others. So, so let me ask just sort of a, a, a follow-up dynamics question. I mean, it seems like from your reporting, what you're talking about, the you know, there's there's this sort of driving force is is agitators, and then there are a set of people who are in charge who are failing to sort of step up and say no to the change. Who do you see as sort of the major change agents here? Who are the actors who are responsible? Is it individuals within the orchestra or within the opera company? Is it administrators at the top? Is it consultants from the outside? Who are the agents who are pressing for change most actively and why are they successful? Well, I would add, you know, the activists are certainly there, both the Sphinx organization, as you mentioned, which has been on a a color-coded crusade within classical music for years. Yes, the HR departments, although those HR departments have been beefed up, some of them in in the wake of the George Floyd riots. You've had orchestras and opera companies like the Met, who've gone way in the red, who've asked their musicians to take enormous pay cuts. Peter Geld, the, the director of the Metropolitan Opera, basically said that pay cuts were life and death matter for the company to survive, who miraculously managed to cough up funding to take on diversity, equity, and inclusion officers for the first time. And none of them so far has any musical background. The woman at the at the Metropolitan Opera, who now is going to be guiding artistic pathways through the Met based on diversity, has no background in opera. The woman who's been taken on at the Philadelphia Orchestra is is even less involved. She's got MAs in like education theory, no background in classical music. So these HR editions are post activism. They're not necessarily the seedbed of activism. The press is huge. The, the, the mainstream media, including outrageously the classical music press, who should know better, are and, and every institution today is a front page story just queued up and waiting to be hit out of the park because all a journalist has to do to get to the front page of the New York Times or Washington Post is do a bean counting tally of an institution and if there are not proportional representation of Blacks and Hispanics, voila, you have proof of systemic racism. So the press is a big function factor. And I would add one other actor that you uh, haven't added yet, Charles, which is foundations. Philanthropic support now is exclusively interested in racial justice, whether it's a foundation support for music organizations, for art institutes, for for the humanities, they only want to look at you if you say that you've defined yourself as an anti-racist organization. So you have these, you know, it's like in, in the STEM field, we see that scientists won't even be looked at. You can be Albert Einstein, and you're not going to be considered for a physics department unless your diversity, equity, and inclusion statement provides, you know, persuasive and enthusiastic support for the fact that you intend to use your your time with the university cultivating black students whether you actually can do physics is of less interest whether you're the next nobel prize assuming that we have any meritocracy left in the nobels in science which i actually don't believe is possible any longer from now on every every nobel prize in sciences is going to take diversity into account if a female has been nominated 
you know nothing about her scientific qualifications. For all we know, she's there as a gender hire. But but foundations look only to racial justice at this point. And, and I would say that this is absurd. Racial justice is not the comparative advantage of a classical music organization. It's not what those musicians studied 12 hours a day to do. They, they can add nothing to it. It is not the comparative advantage of a museum. Let them specialize in what they can do best, which is passing on traditions that embody the greatest drama in human history, which is the evolution of human style and expression. And, and if you truly believe that we have glaring racial justice work yet to be accomplished in this culture, which I disagree with vehemently, let that be done by more appropriate institutions, whether it's government or private civil society organizations. It's not for a classical music organization that should be devoted to, to putting on the best possible case to audiences who are otherwise ignorant for Bach and Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn, and Brahms. So one thing that you alluded to is that to really make it to an orchestra, you need to start at a pretty young age and commit yourself to hours and hours of practicing, and you kind of need a very perfectionist personality. Do you think that there may be a relationship between those kinds of personality demands and the wokeness push? Because it does seem that the most kind of meritocratic driver-like institutions in the United States, especially elite colleges, are especially prone to a certain kind of elite progressivism. Do you think that there's any kind of personality connection here? I don't follow your question. I would say that what is needed at this point, given the decimation of of music education in the schools and the virtual disappearance of classical music from the public square, unlike in the 1950s when you still had opera singers going on, the Ed Sullivan show into the 1960s and and, you know, Disney wrote Fantasia, created Fantasia, which has an exclusively classical music score. What you need is a home culture that will ride a child to practice insanely. If you want to be a string soloist or even to get into a, a, a top flight orchestra or a pianist today, you have to devote yourself to that obsessively. And those values come today overwhelmingly from Asian families. They've supplanted even Jews in the preparation of of classical musicians. So you need the support overwhelmingly of two parents and a commitment to mastering a tradition that is very, very difficult. What that connection is to meritocratic elite institutions like universities, I'm not really sure. I think the 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 sort of root of the question is that is that there does appear to be this phenomenon. You know, I'm I'm interested in the heterogeneities of institutional responses kind of thing. I mean, you know, which institutions are more likely and less likely to take this kind of thing up? And it seems to me like the institution, many of the institutions that have been most infected by quote unquote wokeness over the past year and a half are those which are sort of most competitive and also 
sort of entail the sort of most dedication to really being able to get in. So I think of the National Poetry Foundation. If you want to be a professional poet in the United States, you have to spend a huge amount of time and know exactly the right people to get this very rarefied environment. I think the same thing is true of an orchestra. It's also true of elite higher educational institutions, which are, of course, hotbed for all of this stuff. So I guess, you know, the the question is, why do you think, part of why I'm interested in orchestras is that they seem to be a, a microcosm of this phenomenon. Do you think that there's something about competitiveness where, you know, people are using such just ideology to get an edge competitively, or they are otherwise the sort of person who is persuaded by this kind of argument? Is there is there some connection there? Or is it all spurious? Well, again... The most competitive people, just like in the universities for orchestras today, are Asians. And as in universities, they're the ones that are going to be screwed if we start using racial quotas. So it's not those supremely competitive people who are pushing for this, except, of course, even in university settings, it's illegal activist world, there always are the very woke Asians who take positions completely against their group self-interest and support racial preferences. But again, like, I guess I would say the people that are benefiting from the attack on meritocratic standards are not the ones who competed on the basis and won on the basis of those standards. So I still I still not quite following. I, I think that elite institutions are certainly have embraced an ideology of white hatred the most explicitly. And and I would say here, you know, responding to some of the setup, Charles, of wanting to think about this in let me get this off. I think of things as primarily ideological. To me, the, the, the narrative in which things are being done, I think, should be taken first and foremost at face value and to look for kind of deep structural reasons is, is less compelling to me. I think the people that are attacking Western civilization really do believe uh, in the idea that it is white patriarchy and that that is how it's best defined, even though, again, the, the notion that there should have been a whole range of black composers in Europe absent discrimination for hundreds of years is ridiculous because there were no blacks in Europe until the late 19th century, more or less. Now, I'm not denying that there was in the 20th century, there was discrimination against Black composers and performers, there was, uh, and it was heartbreaking. But that is not the reality today. The reality today is just the opposite. So, so again, I, 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 it's true that the elite institutions are have the most influence in in this crusade, but they're not the only ones. It's happening throughout society in non-elite institutions such as the primary schools and a range of businesses. So again, I'm, I'm just not connecting your dots because I, those who've benefited from meritocracy are going along with right. an attack on it that would destroy what they've created. So it's let me, let me, 
let me actually sort of build off of that. And you alluded to this earlier, the, the, the people who are in positions of power, responsibility in these organizations are, I think, in the, uh, you said the word capitulating, but more or less capitulating to activist demands. And that's sort of interesting to me because you would expect these to be ideally the people who are sort of most respond, most interested in preserving classical music, most interested in preserving what you allude to as sort of the, the heritage of classical music in the United States or in Great Britain. So, so you know, you're, you're sort of talking about ideological determinants. Why, why do you think there has been this sort of mass capitulation? Why are people rolling over, as it were? Because they're utter cowards. I can, that's the only explanation. It is appalling. It is contemptible that leaders of these organizations, I reached out to a range of conductors, uh, Berenbaum, Gustavo Dudamel, Ricardo Muti, Franz Felser Moos, Gergiev, Valerie Gergiev, Noseda, Dutrois, Conlin. None of them would respond. None of them would answer a question uh, in the face of this attack that they should know is going to destroy classical music. When you pour the poison of identity politics into a field, it will not survive. You already have young people for whom this idiom is completely alien. I get it. If you have never been exposed to classical music, I can distance my own ear from it enough to understand how artificial it sounds, how remote from anything in your life. And if you give young people who are already light years away from this a reason to further their ignorance by saying, well, after all, it's, it's a, a racist and classist and sexist institution, you actually think that this is going to bring them in? You know, the, the classical music press presides over a industry whose salience shrinks by the year. And yet they have jumped on the bandwagon. Their, their, their active involvement in this narrative is even more appalling than the passive silence of orchestra leaders, of soloists. I reached out to Lan Lan, to Andra Schiff, to Evgeny Kissin, to Matsuda Uchida. None of them would speak. They've got their heads in the sand. They would. They are more terrified of being accused falsely of racism than they are terrified that this institution that they should know contains some of the greatest treasures of human experience that it goes down the drain. And it is, it is disgusting. You also mentioned something earlier that I wanted to, to return to briefly, which was that in one of these kind of cancellations, what happened was the activists didn't even understand that the point of an operetta was to kind of be comical and to subvert expectations in various ways. C could you talk more about the, the sort of broader conflict between these DEI consultants and the activists who support them on the one hand, and then kind of the the demands and the knowledge required of classical music on the other, which seems to be a, a field that, you know, is 
very specialized and, and just has a lot of nuances and intricacies that are not well, I think, suited to the kind of black white worldview of identity politics? Well, the critics fail to understand genre and style, but we've seen this, this dumb literalism for decades now. But, you know, the word master is getting <laughs> repealed everywhere on the assumption that it is somehow related to slavery, and it's not. It, it, it often refers to magisterium from medieval period of, of, of the teaching, teaching capacity or a mastery of a subject. Somebody just told me that the University of Utah has now banned the use of men, the phrase mentor because of men within it. I mean, this is as ridiculous as we remember the, the retiring of the word niggardly that has nothing to do etymologically with the n-word and so you know here to to take operetta which is a whole set of tongue-in-cheek paradistic conceits that have been handed down over time to 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 take them as naturalistic portrayals of of various groups that may show up in a character is just plain ignorant but now you have ignorance determining what is allowed to be produced. The opera canon is just one big cancellation waiting to happen. You know, the, the idea of trigger warnings that, that especially females are so fragile that they cannot maintain any kind of emotional distance between themselves and a work. And so thus, all of Ovid has to be canceled because they think that they are somehow implicated in, in mythological conquests of males by females and gods by, by, by nymphs and, and other deities. And the idea that, you know, if, if, if Don Giovanni shows a failed or possibly consummated rape attempt, I mean, that Don Giovanni is doomed. There's, there's just a whole series of, of operas that do portray traditional relations between the males, males and females that are, are asking to be thrown off stage because we, we are imposing contemporary norms and not understanding historical difference. You know, the, the left talks about diversity and, oh, diversity is such a wonderful thing. They want conformity. They want just absolutely stifling uh, uniformity, predictability. If you really have an appetite for diversity, how about you read the classics? How about you read a medieval epic? How about you try and master Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen? That's difference. You know, that's a worldview that is so different from our own. If you can lose yourself in pastoral poetry or in a Scarlatti sonata, you are entering a completely different consciousness. And the fact of the matter is, is that the diversity activists, crusaders and bureaucrats want absolutely stultifying homogeneity. They want everybody to conform to their own absolutely novel 
in many instances, almost overnight new norms, say with regards to trans identity and gender identity, and, and have no tolerance for anything that differs from their own monopolistic and hegemonic view of the world. Yeah, so, and you've, you've addressed this a little bit already, I guess as a, as a closing question, you know, I have, I have some friends who, who are fans of yours and, and they'll dig up stuff that you wrote 20 years ago for City Journal and be like, yeah, she basically saw all of this coming. You know, we, we like to joke that, Heather, you know, you're, you're, you're the Cassandra of wokeness. You've been saying this is going to be an issue. Nobody's been listening. But so, you know, you just you, you gave us, I guess, sort of the pessimistic case of what's going to come next. And just now sort of the how it will all get worse and worse. Do you have a sort of possible future in which this is corrected, in which, you know, people come to their senses? And if so, how do we get there? No, I don't. Unless unless the guardians start strapping on some balls, it's all going down. I, I cannot, I'm sorry to be a, a, a Cassandra constantly and to be pessimistic, but I see every institution coming down today and it's all because meritocratic standards do at this point in time have a, have a disparate impact. And as long as racism remains the only allowable explanation for any racial disparity in any institution, it's all coming down. And unless people start standing up for the fact that, no, we are today anti-racist in our every institution, black privilege is the reality, not white privilege. In, in, in 10 years, nothing is going to change. And so these leaders, if they don't start stepping up and defending what is their privilege to curate and pass on the momentum is accelerating it is not slowing down there will be china you know for classical music is our hope europe is is not as bad although the ballet company in berlin has canceled the nutcracker for the entire christmas season because it thinks that the dances involving the Russians and Chinese are racist, which is preposterous. The Russians and Chinese do not need protection from from Tchaikovsky. I can guarantee you that. So it's it's happening here and there in Europe, but you also have leaders like even Emmanuel Macron standing up and saying, "We're not tearing down our statues. You know, we are not going to betray the legacy of Voltaire and Diderot and Rousseau." So. They are behind us. The Anglo world seems to be the most crazed by this nonsense when you have uh, buildings named for David Hume torn down in, or renamed in, in Glasgow University. It's very, very bad. So everybody that has any kind of voice has to start pushing back and saying, the hell with being called a racist. I don't give a damn. The facts are on my side. Yeah, well, so I think we want to start wrapping up. And in closing, I would just go back to something you said and, and highlight it because I thought it was quite important that why would kids want to learn classical music if the way it's presented to them is this is all whiteness and white supremacy? And I, I think that's an important point to see because there are other institutions that deploy a very similar line where they say, well, we need to like decolonize, for example, classics, not just classical music, but like, you know, study of Greek and Latin, because otherwise 
kids won't want to learn it. And this was actually an argument that was made at Princeton University recently when they decided to abolish Greek and Latin requirements for the classics major. And, you know, part of what they say is, well, like we want to make it more inclusive, blah, 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 because the field has been racked by white supremacy. It's like, well, then why would anyone take classics? Why not just take engineering? It, it just, the moment you kind of concede that the field is rotten in the name of making it more inclusive, you're not going to include anyone. You're just going to doom it to irrelevance. And, and so it seems to me that 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 is kind of a common thread throughout a lot of these problems where unless you can just defend it on its own terms, you're you're going to lose. Charles, do you have anything you want to say in yeah, closing? No, I mean, I think I, I, I agree. You know, I, I, I am I am a little bit more, perhaps a little more of a, a structuralist or an institution. You know, I, I like to think about it in economic terms than, but you know, a, a little bit less concerned with ideology than our guest is. But I do agree that you know, obviously, how people think about things matters a great deal. We had we had Wesley Yang, the social commentator, on previously, and he sort of talked about this phenomenon as an expression of general abolitionism. This this attitude where there's just sort of a, a general enmity towards all institutions and the disassembly of institutions as such is the primary goal of everything that's going on. It really does seem like, you know, it, it, it does seem like that's the phenomenon that's happening here. That's happening in microcosm across the arts. And in some instances, those are sort of, you know, stuff like the arts are sort of, they're, they're the, the things that we attain to when we have achieved basic sustenance. When we're doing, when, we're, when the economy is going well and we can afford to have patronage, then we're able to afford the arts. Then we're able to sort of produce things of greatness and beauty, the pinnacles of human civilization. And so those are the things that are easiest to get rid of and that like are, are the easiest to target or to take apart because they're sort of the most epiphenomenal to, you know, they're, they're, I think they're in one sense, epiphenomenal, that's essential to the structure of civilization, but it's sort of uh, very fragile in that regards. And so I, I, I think it's right that, you know, we're taking apart from the inside and we, we lose the sort of structural or collective justification for these things. And that's really harmful. I guess we should wrap up by by doing some recommendations and and I'll invite our guest if she has recommendations. I'll plug her work in a second. Aaron, do you wanna do you wanna kick us off? Yeah, well, so on the subject of a kind of obsession with racism and music, I'm going to recommend the Broadway musical Avenue Q, and in particular the song Everyone's a Little Bit Racist, which sounds like a kind of woke song and, you know, some sort of pay-in to implicit bias, but it's actually really the opposite. And, you know, you watch the musical, I think it's it's fairly strongly anti-PC, anti-woke. The message is that we should not be so uptight about, you know, mild forms of racism, implicit bias, things like that, which I think is a good message and one that the sort of race and grievance-obsessed orchestral community could take to heart. Heather, do you want to do, do offer a recommendation for classical music, opera, things that our listeners should be listening to in their free time? Well, I would say, I mean, I think a lot of people find their way to classical music through the great romantic classics, whether it's the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto or, or, or Grieg or, or Liszt. I might start a little more intimately with Chopin, the Nocturnes, Piano Nocturnes. These are uh, solo piano works that are just extraordinarily erotic and poignant and speak to yearning. I would say also Brahms's piano works, the, the impromptus, 
and uh, different the romances are even more unsettling in their in their arrows. This may be difficult for somebody who is a, a novice to to classical music, but one of the works that most astounded me in high school was Bach's St. Matthew's Passion. And it's a nice antidote for the utter oversaturation of um, Handel's Messiah during Christmas. Now the Passion is about the crucifixion of Christ. But, and, and it does involve vocal music, both solos and choruses, which is difficult, I think, sometimes for people that are not used to classical singing. Nevertheless, it is utterly shattering. And, and its power, the choruses of its power, it's the power of its choruses, just stunning. And the, the pathos of, of its solos and, and the deep consolation that finally achieves at the end are, are truly sublime and transformative. Well, thank you. Thank you for the recommendation. And thank you for coming on the show. My, my plug this week, by the way, is for, I think you were doing something musical. And I said, no, I should tell people to go subscribe to City Journal because I can get away with that because it pays my salary and Heather's. But, you know, there are, there are decades and decades of past work that I encourage everyone to go check out, consider becoming a subscriber. Thank you once again to Heather for joining us today. It was a pleasure and very informative. Thank you as always to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, compliments, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Charles F. Lehman, at Aaron Sibarium. I encourage you to follow Heather's work in the Manhattan Institute and City Journal and all over the media. Are you on Twitter? You're on Twitter, HMD at MI, right? Yes, and let me just throw in one more recommendation. Please, all of please, Mozart, please. All of Mozart, end of story, piano concertos, symphonies, all of Mozart. I mean, the God, the God. Okay. <laughs> yes, I, I, uh, I just uh, Google Heather McDonald and Twitter. Yes, all of Mozart in addition. And that's all the time we've had. I've been Charles Fan Lehman. I'm Aaron Samarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. Hope you'll join us again next week. 